Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's the crack? Hey. Great day for the washing. I'm going on the piss this weekend. I'd murder a bag of hens. Happy house. No harm, no foul. Are you a doorboard or are you a ladyboard? Only a little doorboard. The bleeding hack ya. A bleeding reef ya. Fall and break your legs, don't come running to me. What a gee bag. You must be fibbing. <laughs> Irish stop. How you're wished. Did you wet the baby's head yet, did you? Oh. Ma. Yeah. How are you going? What's the story? How are you all doing? Thanks a million for pressing play today on the podcast. This is Tis Yourself and my name is Nicola Barden and I am the presenter, producer and researcher and guest getter and all around dog's body around here. How are you getting on? Hope everyone is doing okay as we start to ease off the restrictions. I hope you've all been to Penny's Hun and got your socks and your pants and all that. Um, I've been twice already and, uh, and, uh, and it's only open like four days. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, let's hope this horrible weather starts to shift and we start to see the summer that we've been promised. That would be great. But until then, I'll keep producing out these little podcasts every Saturday here with you, wherever you're listening, Apple, Podbean, Spotify, Anchor, all the different spots. Um, Thanks a million. And for everyone who has listened before and for who came back, I really appreciate it. And for those who are here for the very first time, your fair bloody sound. Can I just say that to you? <laughs> so what is this podcast for those who are listening for the first time? Well, basically what it is, is a chat with famous or interesting people where we talk about their lives. We usually start off, I ask them, what are they best known for? And that kind of opens up the conversation. So... In the past, we've had guests like, you know, Matt Cardle, who won the X Factor. Um, let's say McLean Burke, who was on First City. Who else can we say? Edel Lynch from Bewitched. So, you know, those answers are quite quickly. You know who they are because I'm saying them. I'm like, you know, Matt Cardle from the X Factor, McLean from First City, Edel from Bewitched. And that's kind of how they're best known. My next guest is, he has an amazing story. He is an amazing person. He's someone that I'm in awe of completely. He's just a his life transformation is absolutely incredible and he's known for different things to different people I suppose if you are a student in Trinity you will know him as a lecturer of neuroscience if you work in the addiction world you might know him for for how he's been helping people there or you might have known him from before when he had a 15 year addiction to heroin and this is a man who grew up in parts of Dublin where drugs were rife and he fell into that hole starting off quite young and getting into harder and harder drugs and seeing his life slip away, but still maintaining some part of normal life, inverted commas. And then suddenly, you know, the time comes when that can't be maintained anymore. And you might think we've lost these, this person to the addiction. And yet 
he turned himself all around and I wanted to hear how and I want to hear why but I also want to hear what it was like to be someone with um, an addiction you know that strong that you're willing that your entire life you'll give up for this need this thing that you know has a grip on you what is that like and how do you turn it around or how do you become a lecturer in neuroscience like that's incredible in Trinity College uh, one of the best colleges in the world so without further ado my next guest is the incredible Brian Penny and I let his story take over from here your students, you know, they come to you, they're, they're, um, they be, do they call you Brian? This is how, I forget how college works. It's been a while. Yeah, they, they just call me Brian. They just call me Brian. I will be very, uh, I, I'm very conversationalist when I'm doing lectures and stuff. And because it relates to my own story as well, I always start with my own story. I think it's really important to keep people inspired because my memory of college, I went back in, in the later years of my life. I, there was nothing worse than the lecturer when the lecturer is boring and you just switch off. So I think it's about inspiring people to learn. So I keep it very conversational and very, very, uh, very real. Well, the thing is, right, I'm, I'm thinking back to college and I wouldn't have known anything outside of the colleges except for one of my lecturers simply because he started dating a relative, a friend of mine. And that's the only right. reason I knew he had a life outside the college. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, I, and I think that I think that's the perception, uh, and still the, the same for a lot of younger students. And I think as I went back, I went back at forty-six years of age when I went back to college, and I had this like obsession to learn. And the first thing I did, I went into every lecturer and said, "I want to have a chat with you. I want to know what you know." And I was, you were taken aback by me boldness, I suppose. But I just treated them like a human being. And then what happened then? They, they, I got I got into their lives as well. And some of the some of the professors, they were actual professors. In when I went to Minute University, are actually good friends of mine and mentors of mine now as well. So it's just, I think making like a human connection is important, but it's difficult when you're 18, 19 years of age. Oh yeah, because you're just focused on your own personal goals and getting through and that. And yeah. I suppose for people who are going in and studying in your class, for as you said, for them to know that you've been through what they're studying is is exactly what they need because you know I studied journalism and I want somebody up there who has been in the journalism arena whether it's radio news newspapers whatever if it's just Paddy who studied but never actually did anything about it it doesn't have the same impact yeah, it doesn't. And, and you know what? It's, it's even, I think there's, there's, like, there's, I could talk about a topic and someone else could talk about, so addiction is my story. I could talk about addiction and the neuroscience of addiction and all these kinds of things. And somebody else could say the same words as me. But I think if you've lived through it, I think there's this energy, this human, human knowingness where we just start to know that there's something more in more depth behind somebody when they're talking about something. You can just feel it. And I think that really does come across when someone has really experienced the, the subject that they talk about. And there's also the, when you start talking, you say, I went through this and people are like, hold on and this is a bad thing for me to say but it it is what people think you look like that and you went through that because people mentally have an image of what someone who's going through addiction looks like so they're like wait you don't you're completely different than what I expected of this story so you're automatically challenging them visually before you even get into the story yeah, it's crazy. And you know what they say? A picture paints a thousand words. So I have I have an image. I've got a lot of images back in the addiction days 
but there's a couple of really hard hitting images they would have been in the latter years of my addiction and I, I nearly just I, I open up a lot of my lectures um, with we are the stories we tell ourselves and believe but you can change your story and it's a picture of me before when I was in addiction and a picture of me now and I look 15 years older at 35 or 33 I was in that picture than I do at 42 so it's crazy it really it really paints the picture and, and absorbs people in and, and the one thing as well is like we love stories we are hard word for stories we've been telling stories for thousands of years around the campfires and we're hard word so I think what, what what is really important I think every lecturer every teacher should try to implement teaching stories and the narratives around teaching as well so you, you get people in you grab their attention and then they will hear there's a great line I heard one time like people don't remember what you say they remember how you make them feel so I think it's tying them two pieces together and I think that's the essence of a great learning Oh, complete. And there's also the side of it that we love, a, uh, you know, an underdog and especially Irish people. Yeah. We love an underdog. We want to hear yeah. from the person who turned their life around. Um, and this is exactly what, y- you know, your story is. It's we hear the the hardness they've gone through. And you're going to go into that now in a few minutes. But like we hear that and then we see you and you're doing so well. And it's just what people want. They want to back that. They want to go behind, go cheer for you and say, look how amazing he's doing. And it gives them hope in whatever aspect of their own life that they need that hope in yeah definitely it's a hero's journey isn't it it's like a lot, a lot of the big Hollywood films have to carry that thing it's the, someone doing okay they go downhill and then it's, the, it's, it's trying to lift them back up and we love that journey for people the transformation thing so t- you know people now listening are going to be like I want to hear this but they know it's about addiction <laughs> but it's so much more than that as well so like take us back to you know you were born in Mulhudder and Ladywell yeah, so I was actually born. Where was I born? I was born in Singles, actually, originally. I lived most of my life in Ladies Well, my brothers, but I was born in Singles. And um, I, I came into the world with um, a condition known as intestinal malrotation. So basically what I meant was me, me intestines were twisted. So I, no nutrients could come into my body. And my mother describes me as like, it was like something from the exorcist. I could projectile vomit as an infant child. And she kept on going back to the doctors and they said, it's colic, it's colic, it's colic. Well, she knew something was wrong and I wasn't, I was vomiting and she didn't realise, I think a little bit was getting through, like nappies, but she just knew it was the second kid, something was wrong. And when she went to the hospital for the third time and the nurses were nearly like, look, it's just colic, like nearly a silly young mother. So they just says, right, we'll weigh him. And I weighed half my birth weight and they were like, oh my God. So I was rushed to Harcourt Street Hospital at the time, police escort, rushed into emergency surgery. And that's not even the crazy part. The craziest part is, which I only learned while researching my book, that it wasn't until 1985 that the medical, world medical practice, realised that infants experience pain like normal human adults. And before that, infants used to go under the knife without a general anaesthetic. Which is crazy, people. Yeah, it's mind blown. It's absolutely mind blown. It was. It was only in 1985 when some woman found out her child had open heart surgery without general anaesthetics. It was this big outcry, and the medical practice were like, "Oh my God, what have we been doing?" We were just sort of ignorance of old evidence and never really re- um, looked at it again. So. I, I've gone back to college, I've gone back to doing psychology, I'm doing a PhD now as well, and what I've come to learn is that I was basically programmed, like I don't remember the experience, mm. but my body as an organism, you, it's the conditioning, the body keeps the scores, a great book that I read one time, and I was basically just programmed to fear the world and to be in that fight and flight mode, because I had complications from that surgery, and I basically, for the fourth year of my life, I just cried, that literally 24-7 cried. The only time I stopped actually was when I was asleep. And I just associated the whole world with, 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 with danger. 
So that was sort of the story of my childhood. I was an agitated child. I was a, a, a worrisome child. I worried about everything. Thought my parents were going to die. I thought everyone around me was going to die. That was a big worry in my mind. And there was a lot of alcoholism in the family as well. So I had a lot of memories of watching my mum and dad go out drinking, knowing they'd be coming back drink driving. I had lovely parents, but that's just the way it was back then. Mm. And I used to just sit, sit behind the curtains in my me, in me, uh, me bedroom, the netted curtains, I'll never forget it, for hours just waiting for them to come back. And I remember every car that used to drive past the drive, I'd be like, my hopes would build, it could be them, it could be them. Oh, it's not, it's not. And that went on for years. And it was really just the story of my childhood or just this trauma. And basically, how I had seen it, like I was... I, I was treated like an organism as, as an infant and I wasn't given the anaesthetic I needed and I started to struggle throughout my whole childhood and the early teens and I found drugs then when I was about 14, 15 but when I was 17 I found heroin for the first time I found the anaesthetic I'd been looking for all my life and once I tried heroin the first time it was pretty much game over for me it was like oh my god where has this been on my life it just soothed that pain took those demons away that, that, that compulsive thinking that anxiety and it was just really pretty much game over for me then I sort of spiralled into the world of addiction the, the thing about heroin is and this is always intrigues me is that for since it's been on the scene since you know the 80s and stuff everywhere we go people say it's the drug not to do you know and it's everybody yeah. says oh I've tried this that and the other or whatever and but there's this you know don't try heroin and yet it obviously does people do try it and go down like what was it sold to you as before you took that initial hit yeah it's really funny and this is the thing I'm going to read my book or here's my story I think it's a story about addiction but I would say it's a story about self-deception because I, I, I always say this it's a line I love we are the stories we tell ourselves and believe and I was, I, I had got, like, even though I was very anxious, very agitated, I was smart enough in school. I was good at football. I had a uh, of life. Like, I didn't see myself as coming from a disadvantaged area, or I see myself someone rising from a disadvantaged area and really doing well in the world. I tremendous self belief. So when when I done heroin for the first time, like we were big into Jim Morris and me, me and my friends, and Jim said try everything once. So we had to do heroin at least once. I don't know why the fear wasn't there, it's, which is strange. But the, the 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 main thing I believed anyway was I'm not like them addicts. I'm not. I could never be an addict. I'm too good for that. So when I tried it for the first time at 17, I was hooked from the first moment, but there was no way could I be a real addict. So for the first few years of me using heroin, it was like once every two weeks, then once every week, twice a week, then it started, it was weekend use, then we started, right, we're still party heads, we're still kill kids. So we went out a weekend, started doing it Monday, Tuesday, and me and a really good friend of mine, one of my best mates at the time, and he's still on the streets, unfortunately, he, he never escaped heroin. But we just it's just that closing in slowly and slowly and slowly. So we never seen it really uh, gra- gra- t- taking us in. But before we knew it, we were sort of strung out. And I, I had a bit, I had a really bad first panic attack at the age of twenty. And I remember it was just so massive, and I couldn't work, I couldn't do my job without it. And I just had to make a decision. I justified myself. Right, well, I have to do heroin. It's the only way I can keep my job. And I was in a lot of debt at the time as well. So I really just justified my way into it. But to specifically answer, answer your question in general with people trying heroin, I, I think that could be a bit of a trend that they try it 
fully believe in they'll never get strung out. Mm. And then it just started, it's so good. And I think most people, like, so, like I know a lot of people that done heroin and never got strung out because they didn't have earlier trauma in, its, in, in their lives. So heroin and, and drugs like that really grab people in if it suits a, a big pain that was earlier in their life. So that's why a lot of people with trauma are in addiction because they're really just anesthetizing past pain. And, and, and because it's so reinforcing to anesthetize that pain, that it really just takes them in. It's, you said something there that really struck me. It's a lot of people who try drugs, not just heroin or anything, they don't think they'll become the addict. They see yeah. the people on the street who are the, you know, the, the, the very far end of the addiction scale, you know, yeah. and they say, oh, that's never going to be me. But like, you have to think about it. Those people there on that street never thought it'd be them either. That's it. They started somewhere. They started somewhere. And, and, and the funny thing is as well, like I was in a methadone program for 12 years. So I was going in, uh, I was given a urine sample every week to see, and I never had a clean urine, nobody does in, in, in methadone centres. I was going to a chemist every day to drink me methadone, and I still didn't think I was a real addict. So self-delusion is a huge part of that. And I only got an email off someone this morning where they were asking about their, um, they, they have, um, I think it was a brother or a husband, I think it was a brother actually. I just glanced at the email, I have to answer it later on. And it was saying that they, I think they, they lost their, their business throughout COVID and are like nearly on the death door, but they don't say they have a problem. So once you're in that world, it's very difficult to see where you are and you will protect. It's like an ego. You create a story around yourself and you will protect that at all costs. And it's very, very difficult to see. And like you say, every there's no, I, don't, I doubt there's one addict out there, like literally ever, that actually says, I want to be homeless on the street, the very end of the spectrum. But the one thing as well that I noticed in the methadone programs, like you would have people coming up in their vans and their walk vans and their cars, and and they're, they're holding a lot of addicts hold down jobs as well for a certain amount of time. They lose the job, they'll spiral down, they'll get back up, and it's this yo-yo effect. But lots of people you don't know they're in addiction, methadone, heroin addiction, and they are like it's more it's more prevalent than people think in that area. That's something that has shocked me. I have a, I have a sister who works in addiction, and we've spoken about this before. And there are a lot of people who are functioning, as you mentioned it. So again, yeah. people see people on the street and think that's that's the face of addiction, but don't realise yeah. that you could be working with somebody who's going through that. Now they can't keep their job and their you know the facade up forever it doesn't work like that but for a while they could be coming in and maybe you think they're a bit hungover or maybe you think they're tired because they live a bit further away or you know they say the kids are up but you, you know you have no idea this is actually what the truth is yeah, that, that's how I got away with murder in my job for so long. People always ask, how did you keep your job when you've seen the picture of me in the later years? And he basically thought I was an alcoholic. And there was a lot of drink. It was a drinking culture in our job as well. So he's just having a few drinks. He's grand because if they were kicking me out for being an alcoholic, it sort of shines the light on other people within the job management and stuff mm-hmm. like that as well. So it's okay to be an alcoholic in, our, in some areas in Ireland, which is crazy. Or a problem drinker, we'll say it. And, and it's crazy. It's interesting you say that about um, if your sister working in addiction. One of my experiences that I found when I got clean and in, in the addiction field as well, there was even pharmacists who start taking um, Norofen Plus and, and, and Oxycontin and, and tablets like that, and they start taking it on, on, a, on a smaller basis. But then they just spiraled out of control, and they ended up in the fellowship meetings and Narcotics Anonymous and stuff like that. And they were pharmacists. 
So it can happen in many, many areas. And there's lots of people out there that take Norofen and, and Solpidine on a regular basis, not realising you're actually taking opiates, like a form of heroin. Yeah. So it's crazy, yeah. Like the, I, I have a big paranoia about painkillers. I don't like to take them very often unless like I'm pretty much crippled. Um, I just, because I don't know enough about them, like what am I putting, I know that they're for sale over the counter, but like, yeah. you know, the, I might have a box panda all in my house and might go for two years without being touched. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. again, yeah. I don't know what that, what's inside it. You know, th- you know, we've seen that they don't want codeine in a lot of uh, drugs anymore because of that, the power of that. And you've only started to see that in the last few years. Um, yeah. So people, yeah, you're right. People associate an addiction with the, f- the far end of the scale, the heroin side of it, but don't realize like there are young fellas and young girls out there now, and not just young people who are addicted to cocaine, going out every weekend, can't go out for a weekend back when we could go out uh, without doing coke. Yeah, this, this is it. And I, I, I had a bad cocaine addiction myself as well. And I remember I got to the stage and there was a lot of us where we just wouldn't go out unless we had coke. Like, if it's the nights are so, we, we, we see the nights as being so crap in comparison. And I think there's a bit of a trend with the younger people these days. I think there's more emphasis, I think, Instagram brought that around, around body image for the lads that's being muscular for the girls that's being slim and stuff like that and there's a big emphasis on body image and stuff like that so I, I haven't seen this now I've just had to heard a lot of stories about this that they don't drink as much but they're doing a lot more drugs because alcohol is sort of like would be well, cal- it's, it's high in calorie content so yeah. that's some of the stories I'm hearing now and coke is the huge thing that's the thing they, you know, they, and I suppose with the alcohol as well you've got the other side of the day after you're like I know myself I'll be eating everything around me and you know guilt free because I'm like yeah. oh well I'm hungover so it's fine um, yeah, that yeah, might, yeah. as you get older, you know, I'm in my 30s now, so you know that could be lasting into two or three days after going out on a night. <laughs> yeah. And I see all these studies, and they're like, "Oh, come here, um, kids are great; they're not drinking as much." And you're like, "Yeah, but you're not seeing that." Whereas I wasn't doing coke as a teenager, and it was never yeah. an option. They now have that option of going sober off the drink, but they are doing lines and lines of coke throughout the night, and they, and that's not good either. No, no, no. And, and there's something you touched on there that I think is really important as well. Like, we talked about the, the end of the spectrum, like the, the, the homeless person um, as an addict on the street, like sort of the, the face we see of addiction. But then you have, like, eating disorders, and, and pe- or not eating disorders, but people overeating, comfort eating, and because they, they, like, you feel a bit stressed, you feel a bit anxious, you jump for the cake, you jump for this, you jump for that. You, it might be retail therapy, it might be gambling, it might be just obsessed with social media so there's so many other addictions as well and at the end of the day they're really just taking us away from how we feel in the present moment we're just avoiding how we actually feel and, and it's, a, it's a huge aspect of it as well and I think that's why addiction is so prevalent right now like the addiction centres are overwhelmed and I think there's going to be a huge surge I get so many emails off people and messages off people looking for help in terms of addiction I think people that had possible addiction issues are sort of in lockdown they're getting the bottles of wine they're drinking a lot more and I think we could see a big surge after COVID when we come out of this to see where we're at could we we, uh, not not a nice place to be Oh I I definitely agree with you on that one I think that's going to be a big worry for for a lot of people when they have to go back to real life and can't suddenly realise what they've become accustomed to you know having a bottle of wine at night and not really realising and and stuff like that Um, you when you were in the heights of your addiction did you get to keep your job the whole time or when did it start to crumble 
I nearly crumbled at the very end, to be honest. So I was I was twenty. I, I was seventeen when I first done heroin. I was twenty when I had a panic attack, and then I was doing heroin probably three, two, three, four times a week. I was pretty much strung out then, but I made a decision to use it every day after my panic attack, and I, I sort of accepted the fact that I had to. I was, I was physically addicted, and then throughout my twenties. I would be what's called a very functional heroin addict. I used heroin every day. I took methadone every day as well. I went on a methadone program. That's, that's, that's the norm. People think that if you do methadone, you don't do heroin, but that's, that's re- rarely it ever happens. And I was pretty functional. I went out with jobs and all. Like I'd, I'd go out for a night out, but I'd always come back to me heroin. So it was like two lives I was living. Like in my book, actually, I talk about that, when worlds collide. Mm. And at the end of my 20s, it was like my worlds were colliding, the inner world where I was tormented and I used heroin, and the outer world where I portrayed this great life and everything was okay. And then in my 30s, everything just started colliding. Everything started falling apart. Um, everyone in my job, not everyone, but lots of people in my job knew what an addiction. Everyone in my family and my friends knew what an addiction. And I really started spiraling out of control. But it was only, I'd say, when I hit 32, 33, that it really started falling apart. And I lost my job then soon after that. Like, I, 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 I held my job like 34, I think I held my job. But it was like I was getting pushed out all the time and I was falling asleep. And you were literally, like, it, 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 how I held my job is crazy. Like, this is one of the craziest stories that when, when the quality audits were coming in, like, it was a graphics company. And when the audits were coming in, they'd say, well, we have to hide Brian. That the customers couldn't see me because I was so out of it. So I had great friends in the job, and there was a funny thing within the job as well. I was very skilled at my job, so I was very good on the technical side. So they sort of needed me for certain jobs, which is crazy when you think about that. So it was the, the fact that people needed me to do certain skills when I was awake, which is a strange thing to say, and the fact that I, people that loved me, you could say, really great people that really cared for me, I'm still great friends in there as well, and they just protected me, which it was enabling, which I've seen in hindsight, but they done it for, for the care. So I kept that up right, right until up until I was 34. And then, but it was when I lost my job, like it, 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 everything was in the book. Like I sold drugs to fund me habit. I had a job to fund me habit. I had a thousand euro a week habit at this stage. So I had to fund it some way. And I'd done anything I could. So when I lost my job, I'd no money. I was in about 50,000 euros worth of debt. I owed money to drug dealers, I owed money to money lenders, and I, like, I couldn't even sell drugs. Not, not, drug dealers wouldn't even give me drugs to sell drugs anymore. I was just untrustworthy at every level. Like, so I had no way of making money in any way unless I was going to start robbing banks or something like that. And that was just never in me. I wouldn't have been, it just wasn't in me as a person, as well as I don't know. But, um, and that's really when I decided, right, I'm going to have to look at something here. And I was just really, really in a bad way. And I had to look at trying to get clean. When you were saying all that, I just am um, like, it's it's such a different world and people are, I suppose, we're, we don't see this side of things. We don't, I suppose we don't want to hear about the person who's a thousand euro doing drugs every week and the people that are out there doing the 10 euro, 20 euro a week and at the moment and they're thinking, sure, that won't be me. And that's that's so terrifying because you, uh, you, uh, you at 17 weren't thinking in a few years I'm going to be 50 grand in debt and I'll have nowhere to go. Yeah, it's 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 this relentless gnawing at your soul. Like it's so slow. Like that took me nearly fourteen years, and it was just over time. But then the withdrawal of the drugs when I didn't have the drugs were pushing that anxiety to new levels all the time so I was always I think that's the nature of what they call chasing the dragon like you're chasing something that's make believe so you're, or, there's a great line by Gabor Mate his book um, Chasing the Hungry Ghost 
So you're never going to fill them ghosts. You're always chasing something that doesn't, isn't real. It's not. It's not. It's, it's impossible to touch. You're it's really what you're trying to fill is a is a hole in your soul. But you're trying to fill it with something external and drugs, and you're never really going to fill it. So it's a, it's, a, it's a crazy thing. You sort of know, but you don't know, but you don't care because you're just so afraid of the suffering, and you just want to get your drug and just get that next hit. All, all that matters is the next hit, getting the next hit, and have that little relief, whether it's ten minutes, an hour, or whatever that is. And that's all you really care about. My, like, it's, 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 for me, I'm just like mind blown. It's such a fascinating subject in terms of like, you know, looking at it from a retrospective, but being in it, you, there must have been times when you we were just terrified. Yeah, you know, the most terrified times I was, it wasn't it wasn't the daytime or anything like that. For me, I, I remember it was, like, it was like Groundhog Day for me. So I, I wake up in the morning. Um, I, I mean, alarm would go off. I'd be always late for work by an hour. I'd wake up. I take I, I take sleeping tablets in the mo- in the morning to get me through the day. That's how messed up my biology was. I'd smoke a few lines of heroin. I'd take me methadone, and I wouldn't do too many drugs so to just to get me through the day, through the work day. So I'd be in the sweat. So I'd be sort of anxious. I'd feel horrific. I work would finish. Then I would, um, and I'd be going. I'd be, I'd be doing. I'd be going out to the shop, and I'd be smoking a bit of gear in the, in the car, going for a little drives in the industrial estate, just to keep getting me through the day. Like that was really painful, just getting through the day. But then I'd finish work, and I'd, if I had the money, which most times I would, I'd get it somewhere, and I'd just get whacked out. But like, just do as much drugs as I can. I, I used to drink a lot of vodka as well, just to sort of combine with the drugs, just to take me out of my head, basically. But then I'd get home. I'd usually fall asleep um, at home and I'd always wake up around like two o'clock in the morning or something like that and I'd be like, oh my God, I have to face another day because I was in oblivion for so many hours. And I'd lie up in my bed and I'd probably go to sleep about four or five o'clock in the morning. But those two or three hours of lying in my bed was just pure terror, absolute dread and just a realisation that I'm so lonely, so alone nothing is happening and they, they were the worst times in my life and it was like Groundhog Day that was my life for so many years and in those times were you telling yourself oh today will be the day I change or did you always did you have a feeling that you couldn't change no I never I never thought about during them moments it was just really getting through the next few seconds so it was like the, the anxiety for me was always very physical it's tightening around the chest it's sort of like pressure in my head and shaking and a rattling so I was really just trying to get through the, the next few moments and trying to force myself to sleep in them moments but during the day I, I never actually said to myself I'm going to change but I always thought I would get clean tomorrow it'll be tomorrow it'll be tomorrow no, I didn't actually mean tomorrow next month next month I was trying to get down on my methadone I was trying to get off my tablets but I don't know if I ever truly believed I could because I, 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 like I'm all big into stories like my story in addiction was I cannot cope with anxiety I need heroin to survive I have a very different story today that drives me actions and drives me feelings but that was the story back then so I didn't actually think I could survive in a world without some kind of drugs so I didn't know if change was ever possible and it's funny my mantra now is that change is possible that's my whole thing like with a, with a, that's, that's my mission in life to show people that change is possible but um, back then I just didn't think it was possible and what was it then what you know is is it a singular moment is it a an eventual like a very slow gradual thing that gets you to the point where you're like I'm putting this down it's time to it's time to change so basically I lost a job and I lost every, every important relationship in my life no one everyone had to protect themselves because I was not a nice person to be around so I lost everything my health my mind everything and I said well, I'm going to have to try to get clean 
and I tried to get into a detox facility but uh, I had too many benzodiazepine in my system so the detox facility I was trying to get into you had to be off them so I decided to do a home detox at home and two days into the home detox was not only the most painful night in my life it was also the most important night in my life so I woke up two days I, was in, I woke up two days into that detox and I was sitting around the floor and there was blood everywhere and what I'd actually done is I'd, dri- I'd driven my teeth through my tongue by having a convulsive seizure my brother my poor brother thought he was dead he reliving that moment like he's still traumatised over that he thought he was dead and I wasn't fortunately I was rushed to hospital and I remember in Blanchestown Hospital um, I woke up I came around later that evening and I remember just trying to pull myself up off the trolley and I was emotionally mentally and physically broken I had no strength I had nothing left in my body and I tried to pull myself up and when my legs started dangling off the, the trolley I remember just looking at this fire extinguisher on the wall and it was a red fire extinguisher but it wasn't a red fire extinguisher to me that night it was just like I, knew, I said that's the colour red and I said that's a fire extinguisher and I said what's going on I can't, I can't pull anything together and I remember looking around the rest of the room other concepts and objects in the room and trying to make sense and say them in my head and it was like it was like the variable world didn't make sense anymore and I remember just thinking to myself oh my god yeah Brandon game over man that is game over and I remember just sort of being frightened and waiting for this panic and, and anxiety to wash over me this over, to be overwhelmed but I remember just sort of lying back down on the trolley and thinking I give up I cannot do this anymore you win I put up my white flag I'm done I'm done with this and I remember just this sort of sense of peace came over me now I had another four weeks at home going through horrific detox, benzo detox. I had another few seizures. I had another few hospital visits. I then went into a detox facility to get off opiates. But there was something happened while the, the, the fire extinguisher incident was like the, the, the chink in the armor. But there was something happened to me in detox as it was coming off everything. And on the 8th of October 2014, that was my fourth day clean, my fourth official day clean. There was, there'd been an energy coming into my body I was reading about like spirituality and psychology and different concepts that I'd never heard about before I'd never been interested in before but on that fourth day clean it was it was the detox on a farm up in Nall and I remember just being sort of feeling like I was being beckoned out to the garden I was the fourth one up that morning and it was like the whole world just came alive like I'll never forget the dew drops on the grass it was a lovely October dew soaked morning and it was like the dew drops were like diamonds glistening on the grass it was like nature was breathing on me and it was just this profound mesmerising experience and, and around that time it was like there was like this whisper in your mind I think you have a life again wow like is this all moment you could actually have a life again and in that moment like I, I talked about a lot of self-belief as a young kid and when I was reading about these books there were different ideas going on in my head saying maybe I can go back to college maybe I can study this stuff maybe I can I can have a lot I still thought it was brain damage actually at the time and, and then, but then a, a woman called uh, Dr. Johanna Ivers um, came into the detox facility and she was she asked me to take part in a brain study for methadone patients and I went in and got a brain scan and when I was answering the questions for Johanna she said something to me says finally you like sharp minds because I was answering preempting the new questions or something like that and I was like wow maybe I'm not brain damaged because a, a doctor of psychology neuroscience is saying of a sharp mind and Johanna is the person that asked me to lecture in Trinity College so it, it, that sort of came full circle over the years wow. and now I lecture in Trinity College in the neuroscience elements of that as well so it was a nice little uh, circular moment there 
But it was that journey and that sort of awakening moment that really, really transformed my life. And and the work I do now, like I lecture in Trinity College, I lecture in UCD, but really I do a lot of my own work around self-talk. Because what I found was when my mind went quiet with that experience, it was like anxiety left me. So I was like, what is this relationship between anxiety, thinking, self-talk, and suffering? And I've been like, I've been obsessed with this topic, and I've gone deep into this. And PhD is around this. I've done a lot of work around reading books. I've designed courses on this as well. It's called, around mastering your self-talk. Because what, and what I found is that language is a vehicle for emotion, especially when we talk to ourselves. So if you have a lot of negative self-talk, you are basically bringing them emotions on the journey as well, which is, and, and from a neuroscience and a biological perspective, you are in flight and flight mode because so, such a negative self-talk, if you're telling yourself that you're stupid, that you're not good enough, that you're, that are, that you're a warrior, these are the stories you tell yourself. These have a physical impact on your body. I was telling myself I cannot cope. I need to, to do heroin. So the stories and our internal narratives really drive our actions, but they actually drive our biology as well. So I really do a lot of work around this helping people. And it's probably a mission in life that's going to be around this topic in terms of self-talk and the link with our biology and stuff like that. It's such an amazing like turnaround of a life, like to to have to go to those depths, to those rock bottoms, and to be now helping people learn about you know about addiction, to study it, to help people who are going through it, and whether it's you know through as you said through education or through your own work. And as you're saying, you're getting emails in people from all the time, and you're helping and reaching out to them. It's it's incredible. Your family and your friends, the people that you know had to turn their backs on you for some for for you to get better they must look at you now and it's like two different brains it's like how is this the same yeah. person oh 100% and they're so proud they really are so proud and the, the funny thing is we, we read a documentary a TV documentary the other night and family were in that documentary and it's funny like there's still anger there as well like it's like that residual anger because I put them through a lot like I brought my mom and my sister particularly on when I couldn't drive like I'd say I need a lift and I'd bring them on drug deals which were I didn't think anything about at the time but they were dangerous at the time and they were in fear and I was I, I asked people for favours and I put people in danger like I, I, like I, I, I don't hold back on any of this stuff I own my troops and I, I tried to make up for it today but there's a great line in addiction circles that addiction isn't a spectator sport eventually the whole family gets to play but it's the same for recovery as well like a great relationship even though there's a little bit of anger there and there's a little bit of emotion still there uh, we have a great relationship today with my family with my mom. like I don't make her cry anymore I make her laugh I like to think and we talk about life and meditation and stuff like that and they're proud they, they really are proud of what I've achieved but there's still work to do there as well because you can't, you can't it's not a quick fix when it comes to those deep human connections like it's there's, there's work still there to be done that's the thing I often wonder about. You mentioned it earlier on with the when you were talking about the, at the job and they were hiding you, you know, away from the auditors and stuff like that. <coughs> Enabling is a part of addiction. There's it's the same with any addiction. If it's you know um, someone's an over, we I, one of my show that I always watch is my six hundred pound life, and it's about people who are largely obese. And the doctors always say there's someone bringing that food to you. You know, it's yeah. often a loved one who doesn't want to see you in pain. So the same with you know drug addiction or alcohol. Um, when like you who's been through it now and people who might be listening and going I'm, I'm going through this with somebody you know do you is, is it better for them to enable them to continuously until that person's ready to, to to make a change do you have to for your own sake turn back on somebody because that to me seems so cruel but also seems maybe necessary 
for your own health yeah it's, it's a really difficult one there's a couple of there's, and there's a couple of threads that I remember hearing there's a guy called Anthony Zamello he worked uh, he was actually a Jesuit priest like wrote some great books and he worked in Ireland uh, funnily enough because he was Indian but he did work in Ireland and he said to describe compassion as being hard so I think and especially in Ireland I find like people think being sensitive and being insensitive is a, is a good thing it's great to be sensitive but I, I heard another line one time that sensitivity is a sign of non-well-being like if you're overly sensitive and you're getting emotionally hijacked by other people's pain all the time you're not going to be really in a position to help them because you can't really help yourself mm. and, and Andy DeMello says that, that compassion is hard it's walking over the addict when he's in the gutter so he wakes up in the gutter and knows what he's doing to himself so if you bring him into the bed he's waking up in the morning and he thinks oh this isn't that bad I'm okay so it's nearly you've got to be hard it's like, it's like tough love with kids like we don't want to be punishing our kids when they do something wrong but you've got to punish them and I think it's the same for addiction circles as well so it's, 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 it's can be, it can be really really difficult and really really hard next to near impossible I would say as well but I think you've got to be sort to look at the situation and not enable them and in, in, a, in any way but um, the key thing is there as well like if they're in a position where they're going to harm themselves like you like you alluded to there maybe you do have to do like what could be a little bit of enabling until they are in that position but the most fundamental thing that I would say is that you've got to look after yourself it's like people think I think it could be a little bit Irish as well like it can't be selfish you have to be out there and help people and that's what you do it's all about helping other people I think the whole all of life is about other people I really do think that connection is the essence of, of, of the human the human journey but if you don't look after yourself you cannot look after anyone else and it's like I remember hearing that like a lifeguard makes a lousy lifeguard and he's drowning in a swimming pool like he's got to look after himself first or the great metaphor is the one on a plane like a parent on a plane like if the oxygen goes the cabin pressure goes the parent has got to put on their own oxygen mask first and then they can look after their kids and I think that is really important in addiction because we think we can help people in addiction but we really can't there's very little we can actually say and this is an unfortunate truth you have to wait till they're ready Mm-hmm. and in that time you've got to look after yourself so you're in a position to help them when they do actually look for help so I think give yourself permission to look after you and fundamentally that gives you a chance to help them in the long run oh, it's, such a, it's such a fascinating subject it's, and I think especially now you know we see so much with the gangland side of the addiction that sometimes people don't realise when they're you know getting you know a few they're having a few joints or they're buying some pills and they're not thinking of the the grander scheme of things and then we hear such horror stories of you know what's happening to young people because they're being brought into those gangs and stuff like that you know you must um, I know you you try and help as many people as well do you have to sometimes take step backs because because of keeping yourself you know on you know sane and and looking after yourself yeah, 100%. I would have, I have a couple of non-negotiables in my life. One of the non-negotiables is my morning routine. So I'd have a routine. It's around meditation, affirmations, gratitude and visualization. It sounds like it's a big huge practice, but it's only a 10-minute practice every morning. And I exercise every morning as well. So exercise, food, um, will be a, I eat well, I exercise. I, I look after the basics and these are really, really important for me. And another thing I do is I neutralize negativity from me. Like, so I don't do negative social media. I don't look at the news. And I don't really do difficult people. Like if someone is 
in my life and they're difficult and they're negative like I just kind of neutralise that in my life I, I won't I won't ruthlessly cut people from my life when I say look I don't talk about these things I don't do negativity I don't do difficult stuff because I, 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 I think energy is the currency of life and I try to look after me energy and I'm pretty ruthless about looking after me energy and that's really really important so there are a couple of practices that I do put in my life but then again it's all about helping other people so so it's like so many messages and some of them are like essays where they're looking for a lot of help and I know I can't help them in an email so it's like yeah I'm going to have to put a lot of time into that So, I, but I need to make sure I'm okay I will answer them all in time but you need to make sure you're okay before you, you go into all that stuff as well so I think fundamentally you have to make sure that you're well forced and I think that's really crucial and one thing you said there that really strikes me is the negativity thing there's a difference between going through a hard time and being negative because often I, I know from my own friends especially in the past year people have been saying oh I didn't want to burden you with my problems and you know I say that's no problem if you have a problem come to me I am so there for you we can bash it out I can sit and be quiet on the phone I can give you advice whatever you're looking for that's yeah. you know, a person in a hard place who needs help negativity is a different thing like you can be like I'm negative but having a hard time that's okay but when you're being negative for the sake of being negative you know just complaining about everything my shoes are too tight I'm not yeah. like everything that you're going on and that is so draining it's so draining you're my there's people that I'm around and I know that I have to build myself up to go in and talk to these people because I know they'll drain me yeah it's so true I call them energy vampires <laughs> that is exactly what they are yeah, that yeah, is it yeah. energy vampires and it's really it's people that condemn others they blame they criticise they complain and everything they see the bad side of everything but if people are genuine if people like are like are they're hurting and they're looking for help like that, that, that's, that, that's a totally different thing it's, I wouldn't even call that negative I'd call that constructive <laughs> yeah that's a very different thing it's this I've seen it so much in yeah. COVID people are just so negative about everything the government could say you can all go free tomorrow they complain about that then the government says we're locking things down they're complaining about that I'm like you don't have to complain about everything and if you do feel like that it doesn't have to be written on social media write it on a piece of paper yeah. burn it throw it away no one needs to hear your constant negativity Oh. This is it. That's what an amazing tip. Like, put on a piece of paper and burn it, and shut your throw it away or burn it. Get if you really have to say it, say it to yourself on a bit of paper. That's such a great tip. I love that. Well, that's. I, I often think that. Like, I look back on old diaries and journals of myself, and I'll read an old patch where I'm giving out, and I'm like, Why was I moaning? Like, what was I talking about? <laughs> Life was not exactly. I wasn't dying. And then when you read it back, you go, I'm so glad it's only me that reads this. And that's. Think about this. Some some people on social media. I'm like, write it down, and just read over it. And if you're thinking, yeah, still after that, I'll put up fine. But like, if you're reading that and going, oh my god, shut up, <laughs> burn it, get yeah. it away. Your feelings are gone. Then you've you've cleared your palate. You've said it. That's it. Yourself. That's it. I, I I heard the same one time about journaling. Window wipers for the soul. Exactly. <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that. It's there, and then you're it's yeah. gone. You just oh, I love it. Brian, I could probably talk to you for seven hours. <laughs> I, I know, I, I'm, I'm raging. The conversation's going to be over. We could have gone on for hours. It really could. <laughs> we could. Oh, like, I don't want to direct people to send you too many, you know, long essays because, as you said, you are you are dealing with lots of them. But in terms, do you give, like, webinars? Do you give um, 
stuff like that that people can watch you on I know you have a TED talk so people can go and watch that is it a case of you do things that people can look at you um, you know chat to you that way or how do they get in contact with you yeah so, so I have a website it's www.brianpenny.com and I have a blog in there like predominantly I'm a writer writing is my biggest passion so I have my book but I write a lot of blogs as well everything I talk about I write about so every, literally everything we've talked about today four ways to, to, to deal with negative people is a, is a blog in there <laughs> how to deal with you how to use brain science for COVID-19 anxiety so I write about everything on my website and lots of videos in there as well and then I shot if you want to follow me on Instagram I do lots of Instagram lives I do lots of free Zoom calls as well but if anyone wanted to take a deeper dive I have a lot of online courses on my website as well morning routines how to increase motivation eliminate procrastination and uh, me, me seminal course master your self talk so all of the stuff is there lots of free stuff as well and then a deeper dive into the courses as well but the website is definitely the place to go for it and if someone wants to pick up your book they can pick that up there as well they can indeed yeah it's on, it's on the website as well via Eason's or Amazon or whatever like that just give them the name of the book so they know if they need to go and search Eason's yeah. Yeah, for real. So the book is bonus time. So it's basically, I believe I was given a second chance at life and I'm living on bonus time. Well, I think it's something that after hearing this, a lot of people are going to want to, even if they've never been touched by addiction in their life, which is a rarity in Ireland. Um, I think it'll, it's something that even for the positivity aspect of the roller coaster of life and coming out on the other side, it's definitely something for everyone to have, have a little read of. Cheers. Thanks so much, Nicola. I really appreciate that. As you heard there, Brian is an incredibly motivational person. He's incredibly positive. He's just like his, all of us have had, you know, hard times and thought, you know, this is it. This is, this is rock bottom. And yet you hear his rock bottom and you're thinking, wow, how do you climb back up from that and that and turn your life around and help people. And, you know, he's done TED Talks, which you can find obviously on YouTube. You heard him there talking about his book, Bonus Time, which you can get in all good bookstores now that they're reopened. Um, you can go onto his website, brianpenny.com, P-E-N-N-I-E is how you spell his surname. And obviously he's on Instagram, Twitter, all that. And he, you heard him there talking about the letters he gets, you know, people reach out to him, look for help. And he does it, like he helps people. And, you know, he's still dealing with his own Addiction, you know, that doesn't just go away. Like he still has to maintain his sobriety and, you know, keep everything going. And you see, if you look on his website, he has a slider to show you what he looked like when he had his addiction and what he looked like, what he looks like now. And oh my God, he looks 15, 20 years younger with his addiction than he does now. You will actually, your mind will be blown. So I would suggest going on to that brianpenny.com. Another fascinating chat that has kind of gone down the addiction road. If you have only just listened to this episode and you want to hear more about um, addiction stories, people who have turned their lives around, I would suggest the Matt Cardle episode, which is a few, if you scroll back a few, because Matt had um, a very serious addiction to prescription drugs and he talks so openly about it and gets quite emotional, but he's turned his life around and he's in a much healthier and happier place and I was I was talking to him on Zoom so I could see him he looked incredible and so positive so there's lots of mental health episodes that gone by and but just specifically if you're here for the addiction story that could be one for you anyway enough of me wishing on and on and on if you like what you've heard and you're on Apple 
and you're listening to this on iTunes, please do leave us a review. Let me know what you think of it. Give us five stars if you can. That'd be sound. But if you don't, you know, um, four is grand as well. Anything after that, I, there's no point. You know, it's where um, they, do, they don't, they're broken. The one, two and three buttons. <laughs> Uh, leave a review come find me on instagram uh the podcast is called tis yourself on instagram or nicola barton come and find me either send your messages through and i am back next saturday and you will love my next guest he is a reality star who is very upbeat very much crack i just loved his accent i was just like yeah you, you've won me you've won me with the accent so you'll have to wait and see who that is but until then look after yourselves take good care of each other and I will see you soon. Slangafol.